0: Hi, my name is Gary King, and I've assembled the most formidable JFK team on planet Earth. We've got Dr. James Fetzer, Larry Rivera, who is the number one researcher in the world today when it comes to new research. And we've got Don Fox, who's not afraid to look a little bit deeper than anyone else. So if you're interested in what happened to the 35th president of the United States, then I invite you to our show. It's called The New JFK Show. And it's on YouTube. Go to Gary King YouTube channel. And we've got over 90 shows archived for you there. So if you really want to know the truth. And knowing that over 9 out of 10 researchers are working the other side of the street. In a sea of disinformation. I pledge to you the truth about JFK. Go to Gary King YouTube channel. And find out your true history.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome aboard our vessel again, and anew, as our crew prepares to take off and take you with us on yet another exciting voyage beyond the matrix of this world. This is Raphael and I'll be your captain and tour guide for the next hour, and in just a moment we'll be piercing past the lies of illusion that intends to gate our consciousness in away from the issues of climate engineering and other shady government cover-ups and their worldwide web of lies and mind control that veils and binds these issues around the globalist conspiracies and agendas that steadily approaches and encroaches while the rest of humanity slumbers But some, such as yourselves, are awake and rising. Passengers, prepare to rise above these veils of deception and hazy skies. Prepare for your ascent beyond the veil. Oh, and you might want to buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Gone are the days I can listen to the rain falling down outside my window pane and not think it is some enemy trying to wash us away. Gone. I wrote that in the weeks and days after my return to New Orleans, after my hurricane from Katrina and... New Orleans, which I had left the Tuesday after the storm. I hurricaded with my boyfriend at the Times. Um we were at in Norfolk, Virginia. And when I came back to the surreal new landscape that was now to be my new home, my new New Orleans, I had no idea of the work that would entail in the years to come, and the work that would come in the years to follow that would give me more work and more insight into that time of my life. I survived Katrina relatively unscathed personally. My possessions did not get flooded. I did suffer a little bit of survivor's guilt when I got back because I was actually reaping the rewards of not a lot of therapists in town, and I was able to do my work very appreciated. It was very lucrative. Times were good. Other people were rebuilding their lives. It was kind of odd. There were other stresses, um that were to follow especially in the following year after the storm. My losses were not monetary. My losses were in the lives of the people around me. Um, Friends and associates that have died from various methods and the last one uh, of, of five suicides in one year was the one that I had the honor and privilege of finding and bringing home to his family and loved ones um, as the first one that was there So my my dealings had to do with uh, the loss of lives and community and uh, seeing the frailness of the fabric of society it, it was very, unnerving at the foundation. And everything that I've decided in the, my life ever since has sort of taken that part of my life into consideration. And there have been other events that have shaped me since then, but at the time I had no idea that climate was even possible to engineer. That was not something that was on my radar in my language. I was not aware of climate engineering in any way, shape, or form. Uh, benign or otherwise, and when I wrote that little poem, which I always thought I needed to finish, and I, I didn't know why I felt like it was an anemone, it's just, well, it's Mother Nature, but it's our own nature that was creating global warming with CO2, and, but I, I don't even know quite how I meant it when I wrote it. And little did I know that later on, years later, research would give me way more insight into that intuitive free flow of consciousness that I recorded at the beginning of this show. In this show, we are very honored and privileged to have come across, through the grace of something bigger than myself and my own ability to pin down interview subjects, but I met a young gentleman who who has a story to tell. All right, we are here with my guest, who uh, shall be,
2: um, remain, well, how may we refer to you? I'm going to remain as much as an open book as possible, but to protect myself and my family, I'm going to be somewhat anonymous but not to the point where I will leave enough information that for those that are serious hardcore listeners of your show will obviously have enough clues to research me and, and find my authenticity. Okay.
1: And on that note, let's just establish that before we get into the story who who you are, who you be. We have a uh, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs sheet, confidential client information released with consent of client and representative of AmVets. I'm leaving out a uh, name and other pertinent information. And re- name,
2: um, Captain G. Captain G. of the 104th Transportation Division.
1: Okay, of the 104th Transportation Division, rank at discharge.
2: Was oh, it Captain?
1: And branch of army component active. That's
2: correct. Fourteen years.
1: Okay. P O B.
2: Aberdeen Proving Grounds. That's where we um, prove. That's where we test missiles.
1: Aberdeen, Maryland.
2: Yes. At that time, that's where my father was stationed. Okay. And your time of discharge was medical. Right. Because uh, during my second tour tour during Iraq. While in a sandstorm, I was ambushed and for this great country that I thought believed in me, I took five bullets for, but as strange as it sounds, I would probably take another five. That's beautiful and thank you for that. Uh, what else
1: are we married? Three dependents currently undergoing chemotherapy and PTSD treatment.
3: I think that was probably the, the
2: best time of being in the military. It was, uh, meeting my wife, Heidi, over in Stuttgart. And, uh, I was always persistent in, uh, wanting to meet with her. And I think I kept getting on the nerves. Her family owned, uh, her family owned some pubs there. Here in America, we call them bars, but so they have pubs. But they also own almost like your lucky dog stands here. Um, but they would, they had a contract where they could come and do it on base. So one day, and she she knew the schedule of a soldier, so one day, um, it was maybe about eight minutes before formation uh, she I went to order a hot dog, but really, I was going to try to get her number one more time or to ask her out, and she said, "Oh, it's you again," And she just took this whole thing of mustard from head to toe all on my uniform. I don't know how, but I made it to formation on time. Uh, three weeks after that, I proposed, and roughly a month after that, we were married. Still married today. I miss her, but uh, I didn't want her to be in this situation, so I left my family in Detroit talking.
1: Okay, what situation are you referring to?
2: My, um, it started off in Ann Arbor, um, the cancer that I have, and- they referred me to several places and come to find out Tulane is uh, ranked number two in the nation for my type of cancer. In fact, they have a building called the Topical Cancer uh, Institute, and they're ranked number, actually number one is in Hawaii, and the VA was going to pay for that. That would have been a nice vacation. But uh, second to them is uh, Tulane for my type of cancer, which is sarcoma, a okay. uh, form of bone, uh, bone marrow cancer.
1: Right, and you've been fighting that for how long?
2: I've been fighting that since 2012. Okay, now we haven't um, finished reading off your sheet, establishing
1: some of the facts. One okay. uh, of it was your service date since, since March 15,
3: 1997.
1: Mm-hmm. And, uh, wow, a discharge at 12-12-12, isn't that a mm-hmm. magic number? Um, and if it ha-
2: happens, if it helps to... Uh, uh, I did my MEPS, which that's where you go and um, sign and take the oath. I did that in Atlanta, Georgia. From there, we stayed at a Baymont Hotel. And, uh, okay. And, and then after that, well, just the Sabbath. And then I did my basic training at um, Fort Jackson, which is in Columbia, South Carolina. And my AIT, which stands for Advanced Individual Training, I did that at Fort Lee. Air Air Advance. Advanced. Okay, advanced. I did that uh in uh Fort Lee, which is in uh Petersburg, Virginia. And then about I wanted to stay um an NCO for a while, so I already had the rank of E four, quickly promoted to E five. So once I made E five, I was approached to either go to OCS or Warrant Officer School. And I chose O C S and I did that at Fort Bend. So there you go. Any of you guys are really deep researchers you will find out. We'll be <laughs> Okay,
1: and and that's wonderful. And at this point, I think we can look beyond that. And now, here, um, what was it, some more of what it was you did? Now, did your discharge have anything to do with your health, or it had a lot
2: to do with my health because uh, those bullets went to certain areas that weren't going to be. Um, Is that when the cancer started? No, I believe that came from another incident where. Being in transportation, I was a uh, MOS of 88 Mike. I was in charge of logistics, taking material from point A to point B. And I remember a lot of times it's not my job to question. I signed a clipboard. But there are many a times where we were carrying some uh, almost like the, what do you call those um, containers that be on the highway, the um, orange canisters. Okay. And it would be orange, and I know what a biohazard uh symbol looks like, right. and the warning was not in English, everything mm-hmm. else in English, but the, but the warning, warning it said warning, but then what is this language so that was kind of yeah, <laughs> which I have pictures of that that uh later on but
1: what, what do you what do you mean what 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 do you think uh what are you saying that was?
2: I, I believe that that was the cover-up of what we were carrying. Um, people want to believe that America's not involved in chemical warfare, but it's strange out of 92 men that served with me, well, actually, uh, 80, 81 of those men served under me and one served above me. But to make a long story short, out of that amount of men, why, in the same time frame in our lives, after being discharged from the military, within four years, twenty-seven of us had sarcoma. Hmm. All right. So Very I've been getting in,
3: uh, the VA
2: will not give me uh, an answer on that, and JAG, which stands for Judge Advocate General, won't touch this. Those are lawyers inside the military. Um, I've written my congressmen, senators, and uh, I will not disclose the ones, but one senator from New Jersey, uh, a Republican, uh, gave me some good leads of who to talk to, a private attorney who is really good at looking into government frauds and making people accountable for 27 people's lives, having to change.
1: What is the uh I'm curious to know the population of sarcoma amongst the general
2: population versus your your group that's interesting um sarcoma is a bone cancer, but it's one of those rare ones you know um but all of a sudden i uh, here's he a case of twenty seven no the only way I, I didn't even know I had it, but at this time, I was working as a bounty hunter. And, you know, I caught the guy, and he just basically, you know, he was a little punk, a little 15-year-old kid, but he pushed me up against the, it was like a, a pole. We were in a restaurant. But the push was no no more than like a little tap. But when I went home to my wife, she was like, oh, God, oh, God, what happened? What happened? I'm like, what are you talking about? Because I took my shirt off. But from, from the bottom of my neck down, and it made some kind of weird shape. But from here... Right down here to like my hip where I was getting the shots at, it went from here to here, it almost made like a straight line for a minute, and then it like made like a almost like a Russian sickle kind of thing, and it was like black and blue, so she took me to the hospital, they ran some tests, and they they thought, oh, it's just a bruise um, you might have one person they said, well, it could have been. If you, uh, it if, if was the building old. They started asking all these questions that seemed irrelevant. I said, "Why?" Well, you could have got bit by a spider or something like that.
1: And then they'll go and then do whatever ridiculous thing to like not acknowledge right. some of the doctors. Right.
2: <laughs> so to kind of find out, possibilities. Um, one doctor and I, I saw him twice, and then all of a sudden he got transferred because he was really, really good. He was about to set me up on a organic diet and and show me how the insurance ways around that to cover the uh, herbal way of doing the cancer treatments but anyways um he told me he said look man I, I don't this is strange but uh you're you're blessed to catch this at this stage at that time i was stage four stage four sarcoma uh right now um stage two and uh I thank that man a lot. And I don't want to mention his name because, like I said, I mean I was really getting all set up and he was gonna get me into uh this this cancer home for vets.
3: Yeah.
2: That's fine.
1: No, we're not we're not going into yeah. that. We have enough uh, um other ground to cover that's just oh my god. Um and just to tell me some of the things that you were doing and some of the things you other things you were delivering uh bef- not outside of New Orleans but like in you know you, in in the world have you um, in other countries and during that you've been have you served
3: during the war
2: one of the most precious cargo that I ever was able to transport with the help of other uh, Interpol and uh, NATO armies was the uh,
3: sexually exploited. The sexually exploited uh, children and women
2: that were used as sex slaves and as slaves in Nicaragua. You see their faces when we took out the resistance and the rebels and the You know, it was almost as if they wanted to reach out and hug you and thank you, but then they're feeling like, well, we trusted some these people and they treated us the same way. How do we know you're not going to do that? So, this is how gentle we had to be with them. It's not like any other cargo before. I mean, other cargo you could sit there and uh, one soldier's aren't taught to to cry and have emotions. That's a no-no. But for some reason, the powers to be just told us today be a human.
3: Oh yeah. <laughs> and then the reuniting with the families was also pretty oh, my cool. God.
2: Never ate so much I myself and uh, him, half Hispanic I have never in my life ate so many good foods.
3: Even a fried lizard on a stick. <laughs> And uh you had um deliveries, too. What about some of the harder things you delivered? Well,
2: in 2005, New Orleans was struck by what uh, they call uh, Hurricane Katrina. And at that time, I was uh, stationed in a military base in Georgia. And... I found it strange, but 11 days before the storm hit, 11 days, I mean, I don't even think I remember hearing anything being predicted about this storm coming until about four or five days before the storm, but this emergency conference came in
3: for us to gather up as many body bags, you're going to need about 52 hundred body bags, first
2: thing I'm thinking is oh, fuck. Iraqis have taken over, you know, there's some big terrorist event that's about to go down on us. And basically, I was correct, but it wasn't. See, my mind was uh be trained to think that the Arabs, the Muslims, were our terrorists. But
3: at th- today, that particular day, the United States government is the biggest fucking terrorist. And... I say this
2: to say I love the military but I don't love some of the stupid shit that we do. Unnecessary shit we do. But when they ordered the 5200 body bags and told us that it's going to be for, and they said the exact area. They need all certain wards, And they said there's nothing that we're going to be able to do. Um, this is going to be such a major flood that we're going to need these body bags. They wanted us to deliver those So, we get there, we deliver them. Um,
1: How did they know it was coming to New Orleans?
2: It had to be ordered. See, just like there's a chain of command. Obviously, somebody informed at that time the governor. Okay. And then the governor was like, Okay, uh... Big Brother, federal government, is just giving me some information. i got to act on it. Because if I don't, then Big Brother can step on me, stomp on me, you know. Believe it or not, although I'm half black, half Hispanic, people don't realize how the Confederacy was so more right than the Union. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, so I believe he was given some information about something that was going to go down. And this is how we're going to support you. You just take what we're giving you, and so, so anyways, uh, once he gets that order, he has to take it in front of Congress. I don't know if y'all. So you know, a lot of things that they vote on and talk about, you don't ever hear about. <laughs> you know, they they go into their little secret little chambers. Right. Don't even need the whole assembly. Right. Just get four of us to agree. You know, type thing. Um, But anyways, so we did that, and I found it strange that that was all they wanted us to deliver at that time. They they weren't concerned about supplies. Right. But the day we got there, I also found it strange, uh, although you do have at that time on Poland, it was a naval base. I found it strange that I kept running into, it almost seemed like three teams of Navy SEALs. And although, as an officer, I am privileged to some top security stuff, but I don't think that that naval research base is a training facility of theirs. Though I could be wrong, because I have
3: not known much about naval intelligence, but I just found that strange that they were there. They were in anticipation of something? That's what I believe. This was how many days again?
1: before the storm
2: now at that point now because it takes a while to gather up all of those and we were told to walk we were told to work 24 hour shifts um, man so getting those things um, so we were we fulfilled their order within right about 72 hours so I would say this now marks us at about eight days before the storm
1: so eight days before the storm five thousand.
2: Two hundred twenty-six is what
1: did. Five thousand two hundred and twenty-six body bags were delivered to New Orleans in anticipation to the storm. They were saying.
2: Yes, we were told that um, Hurricane Katrina was going to be a. They told us a Category Five.
1: Okay, that was when you got to New Orleans. They told you that.
2: No, no, that was you remember the, the first briefing. The first briefing. So we already knew so why so we were. The, the category up. I'm sorry. Five. Right.
1: But why New Orleans and not some other part in the Gulf? Or is that just where it was going to land? Or how were they Minus, so sure that, that it was coming to they new, said orleans days new orleans that new orleans
2: was going to be the hardest hit
3: that's interesting that because they could I,
2: predict that by they said by the satellite they were using with a 210% accuracy of their
3: prediction 210 because they're they're driving it in my opinion but um this is not something that I knew with
1: 210%. There was like two days before the storm. I remember I, who was hyper aware of hurricanes because I was afraid of it because I grew up in LA Mm -hmm. where we had earthquakes. And when I came here and I heard about hurricanes, I was scared about it. But I, I knew we'd had the one the year before that was kind of like this false flag (laughs) where everybody thought it was coming, but then it didn't come. And I Everybody mean, was pissed off because they just spent hours trying to get out of town, and and but so there was kind of a, like this disarming. A lot of people were not a, kind of as anxious about it, and it was not until Saturday that I start worrying about it as I see people scurrying and I hear about it for the first time. I've been, i was busy. The first time I heard about it was a Friday before the Sunday that it, it came overnight. You know, landed mm-hmm. Monday morning landfall. So three days before, I didn't really know. I mean, I mean, that's when I, I became
2: alarmed. And it's strange because after we, you know, delivered the body bags, I was expecting to get an order just to turn back and go back to where we were stationed at this time in Georgia. But then immediately we get an order to stand by in the event that we need to be of some service. Um, but I was thinking, okay, why not just stay here at the naval base? I think at that time you also had Jackson Barracks, and the nearest military base would be Bell Chase, But they wanted us specifically to be about a 100 to 150-mile radius out, but be ready at moment's notice to be able to come back in.
1: And was that just to the region or to New Orleans specifically? Like come back were they concerned about covering the region with body bags or no, New Orleans? No, They
2: told us to leave those there, but it was they, from wanted, New Orleans. Right, they did not want us to be in the city in the event when it hits, but to be but then for some reason they gave the Pacific they it was a hundred they want us to be no more or no less than a hundred and twelve miles
3: out. Okay. That's interesting and, and uh Body bags, when you deliver body bags, do
1: you normally deal in that count?
2: Bye. That was the most count that I've ever asked to have to load, and then the rush on them, um put a lot of strain, but it really tested my leadership, it tested the followership of my, of, of my men, my team, um, it, it, it really, really was draining, fights broke out, uh, it was, you know, just frustrating. Just it, it was, but we 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 came together and we got. That's why they say just do it and get her done. That's that's what we're about.
1: Okay, where where did you deliver some of these other body bags
2: to? That's it. Just new ones.
1: No, yeah. But you said you delivered body bags. Oh just oh oh time. oh Which oh! I'm sorry. Times. Oh,
2: of course, like during times of war, um, in Iraq, and then of course with the uh, already decomposed bodies of the. Women and children in Nicaragua. So, but, you know, we've had counts in a thousand, but never that high. That's why I automatically thought that it was another attack like 9-11 or the the towers.
1: Have you ever had to bring body bags for other weather events? Is that the only weather event you remember bringing a
3: body bag for?
2: This is something along with the help of your, usually your uh, National Guard or Coast Guard. Units, um, we would be of course being the federal government on the federal level, and then on the state level. Of course, we would have the more resources. So, in the event that, so when they don't have those resources, we're there to be of support and things of that nature. It's very common. So, to answer your question personally, I'm quite sure that my personal attachment has probably been doing this for years, but this was my first time ever responding to a Event like this. As a officer. Right.
1: I'm sure there's a lot of body bags going out, uh, to the east coast right now with Hurricane Matthew that they're basically wiping the entire coast with. And you better believe that's not <laughs> just Mother uh, Earth doing that. It's very, very deliberate and, um, we might cover that. There's a there's a lot of info and a lot of ground to cover. We did the cover the Louisiana flood and how they feed into those systems um, using massive e- e- water vapor releases from power companies and not power plants.
2: Not be to follow up or be of assistance with your research, but due to the timing constraints of um, not only that, but the fact that just talking about this does open up some uh, emotional gates, and I do want to do say I do thank my post-traumatic stress group, I thank my alcohol anonymous group, I thank the Catholic priest that has been a good confidant, a good spiritual guider, I thank the loving community in New Orleans that during my time of homelessness have treated me with the utmost respect and dignity and helped in more ways than monetarily. I thank you, uh, gives an opportunity for not only vets, but people who are just tired of being sick and tired of the lies, uh, a chance to feel like a voice. And with that being said, I, I want to end with a quote of John F. Kennedy. That's not what your country could do for you, but what you could do for your country. I did not get on this show with an intention to bash, uh, the United States military, none of the branches. I love Uncle Sam, although at times we could feel and I have felt it that he doesn't love me. It's not that I don't it's not that I don't love the United States of America. It's not that I don't love the United States Army. I just don't like the lives. Amen. And thank you.
1: Thank you for your courage and strength because it that's it takes courage and strength for people to be able to tell a thing. simple thing is their story in a world where lies are prevalent so thank you for helping establish a culture of truth and uh,
3: God be with you Thank you
4: This is we are changed WeAreChange.org, and I'm here with Kristen Megan, who's actually a U.S. military whistleblower. She has an amazing, fascinating story that we will share with you here today. Now, Kristen, can you tell us what branch of the military you were in and what you uncovered?
5: Sure. Um, I wa- was in the Air Force on active duty for nine years, and I worked in bioenvironmental engineering.
4: And. Now I know the issue came up with chemtrails. I know that's an extremely controversial issue. Um, a lot of people are extremely divided on this issue, but you actually saw things uh, from your experiences uh, that kind of give it a little bit more of vid- validity validity uh, than I actually saw ever before. Uh, can you go into the details of exactly what you saw?
5: Yeah, basically to summarize it, part of my job was to know everything that was going on in the military and what that might what type of impact that might have on human health, and then the environmental aspects and impacts. What chemicals are we using, how are we disposing of it, kind of cradle to grave. So we were the internal um, compliance people for following ocean EPA standards. Uh, one part of that process was to approve chemicals, hazardous materials, you know, what are you using, why do you need it, where is it being used, and tracking that disposal. Um, After it being brought to my attention about chemtrails or geoengineering, I I used to think it was crazy. It actually was disrespectful to my line of work because here we are trying to prevent environmental aspects and impacts um, and not have anybody get sick from our operations. But in in an attempt to debunk, it changed my life. I started noticing things. I started noticing large quantities on the system where I would approve chemicals that did not have a manufacturer name, wasn't tied to a building and that that was normal protocol when I started asking questions um, I slowly became demonized Um, a a couple years passed after that when I asked again and people realized I was kind of being more vocal about it on social media I was starting to be thrown into a mental institution and have my daughter taken away that changed my life I no longer view the military the same way and I feel like after 9 years of trying to uphold an oath I'm able to do that now
4: and so you uncovered a lot of these hidden chemicals, uh, where's the connection with the chem Well,
5: the connection is, at first, when I saw these large quantities of aluminum, barium, strontium oxides and sulfates, I thought, well, this could be for an industrialized process, for something called shot peening or, you know, bead blasting, things that you see in kind of the automotive industry. Except those were already accounted for. I already knew how much was used for those processes. It was a little type of different constituent. And the first thing I did, part of my job was to sample air, soil and water. So that's what I did. I, I air sampled the soil, the air and the water. And due to my profession, I know at which levels or limits of detection you need to check that at. And the amount of pollution that was in my area, and this is tests I've did in Oklahoma, you know, in Georgia, in Chicago, where I'm now. Um, but then, taking those samples, I knew the background because a lot of these things are naturally occurring okay. and elemental, but not in this form and not in this quantity. So, how did it get there?
4: So, just to clarify. You see these huge storage containers uh, of these chemicals. Then you do the test on the air and soil, and you see these same chemicals in the air and soil now. And that's pretty pretty much been the main evidence I see in people who are for Chemtrails use, is saying, "Look at the soil. Look at the water. Right. Look at all the chemicals in there." And now you're finally the person who's like, "Wait, I right worked in the military. I saw a bunch of these chemicals there." That's crazy.
5: it, it, it is crazy. I used to think it was crazy, and everyone asks, "Why are there no pictures?" Yeah. Well, I'd like to see you try to take a picture inside of a restricted air hangar because you'll have an M-16 in your back yeah. and um the, the hardest part for people to realize is, you know, where are the pilots? Like, there's there's people who have come forward, but these people are scared. You look at what's happened to whistleblowers, look at Snowden, look at Manning. People are scared, and I think because this topic is already labeled a conspiracy theory, I don't think the government necessarily views me as a threat yet. Mm. And um, I mean, I know it's not, not the most safe thing to do, but it's the right thing yeah. to
4: do. It's laughed at. It's 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 made obscure. Uh, but just to bring the point home. The question I have is why? Why are they even chemtrailing? Why is the military and government chemtrailing us? I I don't know. What's your understanding of it?
5: Well. I don't have anything that can solidify, but I do have my opinions, and that is the history of weather weaponry. I mean, you can take away people's monetary system, you can take away people's rights, but you take their food and you disable their ecosystem, that's the number one way to handicap people. And they've done it since the 40s, it's not new. Also seeing how um, it started out to be a, a government program. And then noticing that it is an, a, a way for private corporations to profit off this, whether it's controlling uh, agriculture, uh, you know, profiting. There's certain events, you know, you lose money on if, if it rains, or so knowing that you can kind of predict and control the weather, there's money there. I've also, you know, heard that it could be tied to Agenda 21, but for me, it's not about why. It's just stopping it. It yeah. needs to be stopped.
4: Yeah, and it's called the crazy ass conspiracy theory. The Chinese are doing it now openly. They yes. did it for the Olympics.
5: I mean, they've sprayed people. Um, I'm sure you've heard the St. Louis story. They did yeah. biological testing. So, if the government is capable of doing that, why is it so hard for people to believe? And. I don't know if you've heard about David Keith, but he's actually a geoengineer, Canadian. Uh, he works at Harvard. He just wrote a new book on climate engineering, and inadvertently, he's brought more awareness to this because I feel they're getting ready to admit it, and they're trying to sell it to us. You know, at, yeah. it's kind of like they sell vaccines to us. They sell fluoride to us. You know, fluoride is a, is a mining waste product. Well, how can we make that good? You know, put it in your water. So yeah. I think that they're trying to now, kind of admit it and act like they're going to start doing it and they've already been doing it.
4: So where's the fight taking you? What's next?
5: Well, my biggest issue that I have been uh, tackling is to wake up other people in my profession. I worked for the federal government for 12 years, and uh, it is my line of work. We are the ones that should be going out there calling people out. What is this? I mean, you can't work in my field which is industrial hygiene. I'm an industrial hygienist and an environmental specialist. So how can you overlook this? You you cannot deny the evidence. Just do your own testing. It's even gone so far to where labs stopped running these samples because I think there's pressure on them. So there's only a few labs actually now that we use, but it's just getting other people who have you know, the average person it's great, you know, Get excited at your local level, but it's it's the people that are supposed to be enforcing this on a legal aspect that I've been trying to wake up.
4: Uh, where can people find out more about you?
5: Well, follow me on Twitter because my website is, uh, I had to actually got hacked. So I'm relaunching it. But just follow me at Kristen KristenMegan, K-R-I-S-T-E-N-M-E-G-H-A-N. And just follow me on Twitter. is probably your number one way to reach me.
6: You're amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me the environmental movement has developed a single-minded obsession with the supposed effects of carbon dioxide on the global climate. Rather than CO2 gas, however, the technologies that are now being proposed to mitigate this supposed problem might be the real cause of our coming environmental calamity. This is the GRTV Backgrounder on Global Research TV. For decades now, we have been told to be afraid of the long-term effects of man-made carbon dioxide on our climate. Seemingly every day some new storm, drought, warm spell or cold snap is featured on the news with government-funded scientists warning us that this is a sign of things to come unless the world reduces its CO2 production. The problem, of course, is that this is a third-rate scientific hoax propagated on the strength of the public's ignorance of the underlying science or lack thereof. The models and predictions used to scare the public into believing that CO2 is driving climate and will continue to do so in an increasingly dangerous fashion share the distinction of being universally wrong in their predictions of trends over the past 15 years, yet we are still asked to believe in the long-term validity of these same falsified models. As Robinson et al. noted in their 2007 study, Environmental Effects of Increased Atmospheric Carbon Dioxide, published by the Oregon Institute of Science and Medicine, predictions of harmful climatic effects due to future increases in hydrocarbon use and minor greenhouse gases like CO2 do not conform to current experimental knowledge. Also in 2007, J. Scott Armstrong, a researcher at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Long Range Forecasting, a standard textbook on the principles of forecasting, co-authored an audit of the procedures that the IPCC used for its global warming projections, finding that these procedures violated 72 of the 89 relevant principles of scientific forecasting. Last year, the Journal of Geophysical Research Atmospheres published a study showing that the climate prediction models examining periods of less than 30 years on the geographical scale of continents are riddled with inaccuracies. Earlier this year, the UK's Met Office was forced to raise downward their projections for temperature increase over the next four years after a 15-year standstill in global annual temperatures. Ironically, this divergence from the continuous temperature increases that had been predicted by the CO2 alarmists is now being blamed on natural variability, including the cycles of changes in solar activity, which leaked drafts of the IPCC's AR5 report due out next year indicate have been vastly underestimated. Sadly, the fear-mongering hype and misleading predictions on this issue have become so internalized that there is a subsection of the population that is now willing to question whether every conceivable event in the galaxy is the result of man-made CO2, even near-Earth asteroids.
3: Our science guy, Bill Nye, and you know, talk about something else that's falling from the sky. Uh, and that is an asteroid. Uh, what, what's coming our way? Is this an effect of, of perhaps global warming, or is this just some no, meteoric no. occasion?
7: Except it's all science, and it is the word meteorology, and the word meteor come from the same roots. So, uh...
6: That so many are concentrating so much time and attention to the question of carbon dioxide, a trace gas in the atmosphere, which itself is only partially man-made, is only to be expected. Scientists, pundits, writers, and businessmen are only responding to the market incentives that are at play. Governments and universities around the world are now sinking billions of dollars a year into grants to fund research related to the supposed CO2 threat, and entire industries such as carbon trading and carbon sequestration are developing in response to this interest. Quite simply, too much money and potential political power is at stake for the threat of global warming to be revealed as a false alarm. One of the most worrying possibilities to arise from this trend, however, is the political legitimization of a concept that, ironically, has the potential to become a real threat to our environment – geoengineering. What if we really were in a jam? Okay, and we wanted to really cool the Earth in a hurry. Okay, we didn't want to wait 40, 50 years. Is there another option? Okay, and we explore scientific solutions uh, that come under the rubric of geoengineering, where we limit solar radiation from entering the Earth's atmosphere by having airplanes disperse sulfur into the air. The particles reflect light back out into space, thereby having a cooling effect on the planet. And you can also apparently do this using giant balloons as well. Whether this idea is right or some other idea is right, I think it's almost certain that we will eventually think of cleverer things to do than just putting sulfur in. That if engineers and scientists really turn their minds to this, it's amazing how we can affect the planet. The one thing about this is it gives us extraordinary leverage. This this improved science and engineering will, whether we like it or not, give us more and more leverage to affect the planet, to control the planet, to give us weather and climate control, not because we plan it, not because we want it, just because science delivers it to us bit by bit. The practice of geoengineering is now well over half a century old. As early as the late 1940s, American mathematician John von Neumann was researching weather modification and its potential uses in climatic warfare for the U.S. Department of Defense. In the 1950s, Early cloud-bursting experiments were performed by Wilhelm Reich, and in 1956, Dr. Walter Russell was writing of the potential for complete weather control. In the 1960s, Dr. Bernard Vonnegut, brother of the famous writer, vastly improved the techniques then in use by employing silver iodide crystals in the cloud-seeding mixture. Silver iodide's hygroscopic qualities ensure water particles quickly bond with its crystalline structure. As the recent documentary, Skywatcher, points out, The process of cloud seeding is now so widely and routinely employed that it is having profound effects on our climate. Small cloud seeding
8: aircraft such as bombardier jets and high altitude propeller planes deliver their payloads using silver iodide flares that are ignited by remote control. The flares are typically fixed to the wings of the aircraft and release the silver and salt mixture high into the stratosphere so it slowly drifts down into the moist air below. When the pilots of the cloud-seeding aircraft can see ice forming on the wings, they know liquid water is present in the air and there's the potential to create storm clouds. So how many sorties do cloud-seeding aircraft fly in order to make it rain or snow? The answer is as many as possible. The more aerosols, the more chance of condensation that makes thick rain clouds. Commercial air traffic helps to facilitate the rain by plowing through the field of silver mist, emitting the superheated steam that freezes into expanding clouds. Shade from the artificial clouds drops the temperature below, decreasing the air pressure and creating a low channel that flows like a river, drawing in the moist air. This can allow some ocean storms to make landfall that might otherwise be repelled by higher onshore pressures.
6: Given that CO2 is not the problem it is made out to be, coupled with the admitted advent of modern weather modification technologies and DOD research programs, it is impossible not to inquire into the possible links between the current push toward geoengineering and the military-industrial complex. The potential military benefits to the wartime deployment of weather modification technologies are self-evident. In fact, they are so self-evident that, as Professor Chosodovsky notes, the UN was compelled to introduce a convention in 1977 prohibiting the use of environmental modification technology in warfare, The U.S. ratified that convention in 1980. Other potential benefits to the deployment of this technology suggest themselves in the monetary sphere. So many events in the course of human activity are predicated on short-term weather and long-term climate phenomena that the ability to determine or even influence either could be extremely valuable. Insurance companies, for example, stand to lose billions, and reconstruction-related industries stand to make those same billions, every time a strong storm makes landfall in populated areas. So it should not be surprising that a market has evolved for weather derivatives, effectively allowing large financial institutions to make money gambling on the weather. And it should also come as no surprise that this market was largely pioneered by that infamous globalist-connected insider corporation, Enron. Last year, I had the chance to talk to researcher Peter Kirby about Enron's involvement in weather derivatives and the vast sums that stand to be made as geoengineering projects continue to be deployed under the threshold of public awareness. So let's let's start talking about some of the, the information that you've uncovered about these programs and some of the people behind them. And let's just start by introducing people to something called Enron Weather, which you bring up in your article about geoengineering for financial gain through derivatives. What was Enron Weather, and how and when was it set up?
7: Yes, Enron Weather was a division of Enron. Uh, I'd have to reference my paper for the exact date, but it was, uh, it existed for about the last five years of the, uh, the Enron fiasco, which ended in around 2001. And Enron Weather was the particular division within, within Enron that was known to buy and sell weather derivatives. Not only, uh, was Enron a player in the weather derivatives market, they originated the weather derivatives market. It, it came out of Enron. It was one of their little, uh, you know, uh, experiments that uh, that uh, was, uh, you know, came out. And uh, it, it, it at first it didn't make make much money for them. Uh, it was a uh, experiment, as you know, all experimental businesses are. They often need, uh, you know, capital and, and stuff like that to to get off the ground and take on money at first. But then, by the time uh, of Enron's collapse, they were they were making money by Enron Weather. It was a money-making department. So people try to downplay the importance of uh, Enron Weather. They say, "Oh, well, it was a tiny part, and it only lost money." No, actually, by by the time Enron went under, it was a significant part of Enron.
6: Even if we were to assume that weather modification technologies are not currently being used for the purpose of weather warfare or market manipulation, the potential for such abuses alone should be more than enough to dissuade us from pursuing these technologies. Even more worrying, perhaps, are the true unknown environmental ramifications of the long-term effects of these technologies on our environment. Ironically enough, Those who are warning us of the potentially disastrous consequences of man-made climate change may be exactly right in their assessment after all. But in the end, it may not be the man-made CO2 they are worried about that is the real culprit of this coming catastrophe, but the geoengineering technologies that are being proposed as the solution to this problem. For more on this story and other breaking news and current events, please go to globalresearch.ca. For more research and analysis by James Corbett, please go to CorbettReport.com.
7: The hot water in the kettle gives off water vapor to the air by rapid evaporation, just as rivers, lakes, and ponds give off water vapor to the air by slow evaporation. As the hot, water-filled air hits the colder air near the ice tray, the water vapor turns into clouds of tiny water droplets floating in the air, condensation. When the air is quite cold and cannot hold any more water droplets, they collect together to form larger drops as on the ice tray. And being too heavy to float in the air, they fall back to the earth as rain.
1: Accumulating water vapor creates clouds, just like a kettle boils and creates vapor. Evaporation happens in nature as well. Condensation Clouds Rain There are approximately 7,000 power plants in the U.S. all of which have large cooling towers or banks of WSAC, wet surface air coolers, each of which can produce thousands of gallons of water vapor per minute. Open loop, closed loop, WSAC. Steam is cooled in cooling towers generator makes electricity, water is turned to steam in the boiler. Sequential water vapor cloud fueling. First toot gets you a moderate sized cloud, then a bigger one on the second toot, third one bigger, until you get a nice billowing smoke. Here are some of the power plants at the beginning of the, this continent's water vapor generation cycle in Texas and Mexico. round cooling systems let's look at these three power plants for example see the same circular systems it is these cooling systems releases that are feeding the water vapor Fair use notice for educational and environmental activism purposes, credit to Disney, for Zootopia. Now watch how the propaganda works to normalize weather modification, including power plants with synchronized release for maximum water vapor creation, and their ritualized Luciferian message. Bunny's on our way to Zootopia where a bunny can be anything the bunny wants to be. She's going through a fair climate, see the steam coming out of the wall powered by what looks like power plants. Train goes through a winter wonderland all of a sudden, powered by these synchronized water vapor releases that look like they're coming out of these circular vents. The whole winter wonderland world is ice frozen over artificially. In the perfected future all animals live as one and all climates will be manageable. Now she's in a tropic, also assisted by men, as the song Try Everything plays in the background. Try everything, also known as Do as Thou Wilt by Alistair Crowley, the cultist and pedophile. very utopian, and so is the New World Order, Boaz and Joaquin greet you as you go through the Twin Towers, and as you get off the bus and you're prepared to board, who shall be there with you but our dear friend Lucifer, Satan, is in the house. Did you catch that? There you go. As you step off the bus into Zootopia, a.k.a. New World Order, Satan's with you. And going back to our power plants and water vapor release, synchronized. Don't forget who... Is with you. Welcome. This is how propaganda works. This is how it really insane things get normalized into the subconscious of humanity. It starts young. It is deliberate. And if you've never studied Illuminati Symbolism 101, I recommend that you do there are plenty of videos on the internet for that so in the meantime be aware spread the word if you haven't seen the other shows please do there is a lot of information that is intended to make you more efficient in navigating through the landscape of climate engineering and the many lies and propaganda that surround it. Be safe, be prepared, and be blessed. Thanks for listening.
0: Hi, my name's Gary King, and I've assembled the most formidable JFK team on planet Earth. We've got Dr. James Fetzer, Larry Rivera, who is the number one researcher in the world today when it comes to new research. And we've got Don Fox, who's not afraid to look a little bit deeper than anyone else. So if you're interested in what happened to the 35th president of the United States, then I invite you to our show. It's called The New JFK Show. And it's on YouTube. Go to Gary King YouTube channel. And we've got over 90 shows archived for you there. So if you really want to know the truth. And knowing that over 9 out of 10 researchers are working the other side of the street. In a sea of disinformation. I pledge to you the truth about JFK. Go to Gary King YouTube channel. And find out your true history.